We come this Lord's Day to continue in our study of the God of all comforts. God comforts us by the oath He made to Christ, appointing Him our High Priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Old Covenant portended wrath and judgment. The confrontation of the people by God on the mountain produced horrible fear in everyone. But the reality of the New Covenant received now by faith in Christ is the heavenly Jerusalem, spiritual Zion, We are come to that glorious place even now, the writer of Hebrews tells us, with Christ as our high priest there. Most glorious of all, we have come to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkling of His own blood which has taken away our sins and made us perfect before God. The devil specializes in twisting and perverting God's word as he seeks to overthrow the gospel and destroy the exclusivity of Christ's finished work to save us. That sacrifice is corrupted by the adding of works for salvation and by stripping Christ's sacrifice of the truth that he really took away our sins. No perversion is more widespread and destructive than that of the Roman Catholic false religion. They appoint priests other than Christ who sacrifice the Mass which blasphemes the Lord Jesus' death. Every religion that creates another priesthood to offer a sacrifice for forgiveness of sin is trampling upon Christ's exclusive prerogatives. Romanists twist Scripture to make up a doctrine called transubstantiation, claiming that the bread and the wine of the Lord's table are converted by the power of their so-called priests into the actual body and blood of Jesus. But Christ was clear. The Lord's table is a remembrance of His physical body and blood, which were sacrificed for the forgiveness of sin only one time. Christ has already presented them, that is, His body and blood, to God in heaven for us as our priest. The Romanists falsely claim that their so-called priests sacrificed the Mass, transforming it into Christ's body and blood, and that the Mass continues to work our redemption, propitiate God for our crimes, and cleanse us of our sins. But Christ has already done all this once for all. The fundamental error of the Romanist is their denial that Christ's sacrifice at Calvary has already perfected His people, has already forgiven our sins, and has already obtained our eternal redemption. Thus they create a monstrous and blasphemous sacrificial system not approved by God, because there is in fact no more offering for sin, God's Word tells us. Because the Mass claims to repeat those things that Christ has already finished, the Mass denies the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice. As Hebrews put it, where there is forgiveness of sin, there is no more offering for sin. If we rely upon any other sacrifice, ritual, or priest to cleanse us from sin, we have trampled Christ underfoot and sneered at the blood of Jesus. When Christians opposed this monstrous perversion in the 16th century, Rome responded with demonic ferocity by burning alive those saints at the stake. Then at the Council of Trent, Rome anathematized every person who denied that the Mass is a, quote, propitiatory sacrifice, unquote. 
All of these satanic false doctrines which deny the sufficiency and completeness of Christ's one-time sacrifice are clearly laid down in the latest official Roman Catholic Catechism which claims that Christ's priesthood ended when He died, that the Mass carries out the work of our redemption, that its power brings about the forgiveness of sins we daily commit, and that it is truly propitiatory and cleanses us from sins. Therefore, Rome demands that its adherents worship the Mass, bow before it, adore it, and carry it about in processions. But the truth of it is that Christ's sacrifice was offered only once, where it forever purged our sins, made believers perfect, and accomplished our redemption. Therefore, there is no need for further sacrifice, and God has never authorized any priest but Christ to present before Him that unique offering for sin, which is God's Lamb slain at Calvary. The Apostle Paul's teaching in Romans 3 and 4 overthrows the blasphemy of the Roman Catholic Mass. God declares ungodly sinners righteous through faith, not by works. Christ's righteousness is imputed to sinners. This is received by faith in the propitiatory sacrifice of Christ's blood once for all. God declares us perfectly justified even while we are still sinners. All those who have trusted in the sacrifice of Jesus are blessed by God because He thereafter refuses to impute our sins against us anymore. Rome's sacrifice of the Mass denies imputation of the righteousness of Christ. It teaches that men are justified by becoming righteous in themselves by keeping the law. Thus, when men sin, they lose their righteousness and justification. And it must be restored by the Mass being repeatedly represented to God to take away their sins again. Contrary to Scripture, according to the Romanists, God is continually imputing our sins to us. Therefore, there is no blessed man in this life according to their false religion. The Roman Catholics thus deny the finished work of Christ and how it justifies and cleanses believers of their sin forever. They have constructed the blasphemous contraption of the Mass which ensnares their adherents in an endless cycle of loss of justification and righteousness to be restored by constant rituals and obedience to their so-called priests. Under that system, there can be no peace with God and believers in Christ can end up in hell in the end because the Romanists deny that Christ's sacrifice actually justifies and redeems men with any finality. But God has comforted us by His oath to Christ making Him alone our High Priest and perfecting us once for all by His sacrifice that has taken away our sins forever. And I want to stress the important truth about all this, that if a person participates in the Roman Catholic Mass and believes that Roman Catholic teaching of that Mass, then he is in grave danger because... He is thereby denied the effective work of Christ on the cross for him. And he is participating in a process which is unknown to the Scriptures of restoring justification and righteousness and forgiving sins. That implies it requires that Christ's sacrifice didn't do those things. 
And so therefore, he's substituting his faith for his forgiveness and righteousness before God, substituting it unto the Mass as opposed to resting in the work which Christ has finished for his people already. And so the Bible teaches no concept of a liturgical priesthood in the church. Nowhere is a priesthood ordained other than Christ by the oath of God to make a sacrifice for sin. The apostles, the prophets, the pastors, the teachers, the elders, the deacons, all of those are ordained by God, but none of them are given any power to offer a mass or to transubstantiate the bread and the wine into the body and blood of Christ. And they're not authorized to make an atonement or a propitiatory offering. They're only authorized to proclaim and preach the propitiatory sacrifice which Christ made one time for all time. None are authorized to represent Christ's body and blood before God for the forgiveness of sins. Only Christ has the authority to do that. And He has done it. And He is doing it now. You remember it says, Who can condemn us? It is Christ who died, yea, rather is risen, is seated at the right hand of glory, and who makes intercession for us. So this morning we're going to speak about the subject of the unauthorized and usurping priesthood that various false religions have entered into. As if to shove the Lord Jesus Christ away from His job as our high priest forever and to fabricate another priesthood with different rituals and with powers that overlap the power that Christ alone has and with authority to subjugate the Lord's people under a system of works salvation, of ritual, and of obedience to their so-called priesthood. Just to be clear, no pastor, no deacon, no bishop, no apostle can ever present Christ's sacrifice to God for us to take away our sin. Because Christ alone is our high priest. He alone has already presented His body and blood to God taking away our sin forever. But that truth loosens the grip of a false religion entirely, doesn't it? Since our loyalty and duty are principally to Christ and not to any usurping made-up priesthood. And here is the, the real problem in the Roman Catholic system is that the people all are subject to the priest and to the obedience to the priest. And their eyes are completely taken away from the Lord Jesus by the rigmarole, the ritual, the offering of the Mass, the saying of confession of sin, the penance, the purgatory, the indulgences. None of that stuff has anything to do with what the Bible teaches. And it denigrates from Christ's honor and glory. And this is imposed upon these poor people by wicked prelates and false popes the Roman Catholic Catechism introducing this fictitious and rebellious priesthood probably starts at number 1366, paragraph 1366. We read this last Lord's Day, but I make a different point this Lord's Day. 
Christ our Lord and God was once and for all to offer himself to God the Father by his death on the altar of the cross. Well, that's true. There's a lot of things that Roman Catholic teaches that are true. It's just where they take it that's false. To accomplish there an everlasting redemption. So you see, they claim in one place that Christ made an offering to accomplish an everlasting redemption. But then they take it right away by making that redemption an on-again-off-again thing. You can have it and you can lose it. You can have it and you can lose it again. And the way you get it back is by the Mass. By this sacrifice that their so-called priests make. Then listen to this. But because his priesthood was not to end with his death, well, we agree it wasn't to end with his death, but the Roman Catechism basically says that it did end with his death. At the Last Supper on the night when he was betrayed, he wanted to leave to his beloved spouse, the church, a visible sacrifice as the nature of man demands by which the bloody sacrifice, which he was to accomplish once for all on the cross, would be represented, its memory perpetuated until the end of the world, and its salutary power be applied to the forgiveness of the sins we daily commit. So you see this sleight of hand here that Christ's priesthood ends at his death, they think. Even though Hebrews says he continues forever as our priest, that's why he can save us to the uttermost, because he ever lives to make intercession for us. But what they're saying is, is that it would have ended at his death, and so the reason Christ instituted the Lord's table or what they call the Mass, is so that He could institute a new priesthood to offer up the Mass to continue the work that His sacrifice on the cross made and to forgive sins. So you see how they've shoehorned in another sacrifice that saves from sin and therefore a concocted priesthood that makes the offering of the Mass. And that this is to take the place of Christ as our priest whose priesthood ended when He died. That's the sum of their teaching as to how this Romanist priesthood came to be. How it came to be. But of course, we know Christ's priesthood did not end with His death. He is forever our priest after the order of Melchizedek. He pleads for us right now in glory. He did not need to leave to his spouse a visible sacrifice. He didn't leave to his spouse a visible sacrifice. He left a memorial of his sacrifice to remind us of the sacrifice that he did. And as the nature of man demands, notice that. What an accommodation to lost and sinful man's desires with regard to religion, the false religion. That because men need a visible, tangible sacrifice, that's why the Mass was introduced. was to satisfy our desire for a physical, natural sacrifice. Well, who says that God has to satisfy the desires of sinful men? Isn't that the point of justification by faith that we're supposed to believe God's Word about the sacrifice of Christ? We're not supposed to rely or transfer our faith onto some visible, substantial sacrifice. 
we're supposed to trust in the finished work of Christ that happened once for all time in time and space. But you see, they justify, or they try to justify the Mass and their false priesthood by appealing to the natural desire of men that there be forever with them a physical sacrifice. And isn't that like the Jews in Hebrews' day? Why, the animal sacrifices were something they could see. And yet, the Scriptures tell us Christ had put an end to those sacrifices by His sacrifice. Why, if there's a physical sacrifice that has to be repeated or represented for the forgiveness of sin, doesn't that tell us that's just like the old animal sacrifices? They never stopped because the sin was never forgiven. And they never stopped because they couldn't take away sin. That's what the writer of Hebrews has spent all that time and space pounding into our heads. Its power, they claim, is applied to the forgiveness of sins. And thus, they say, the sacrifice of the Mass is truly propitiatory. So here is the problem with the Roman Catholic system with regard to the priesthood that it's created out of whole cloth and supposition based upon faulty premises, that Christ's priesthood stopped when He died, that man's desire must be satisfied to have a visible physical sacrifice, and it has to be in His presence and repeated ad infinitum, and that that sacrifice has to replicate the effect of the sacrifice that it's modeled after, But then that means that that sacrifice wasn't effective, as the writer of Hebrews said, because if it had been, there would be no more sacrifice for sin. There would be no more sacrifice for sin. Now, the Roman Catholic system has made it all up by adding to God's Word with rituals and false doctrines. Only Jesus is authorized to make one sacrifice for our sins. Now, I wanted to spend a good deal of the rest of this discussion this morning in reading just how blasphemous the official teachings of the Roman Catholic system are with regard to the priesthood which they have created out of whole cloth. There are blasphemous statements about Jesus and these so-called priests. For example, James O'Brien, the Reverend James O'Brien, wrote a very popular book in the first half of the 20th century called The Faith of Millions. And it has the nihil obstat and the imprimatur. So it's accepted as sound Roman Catholic teaching. He says this, When the priest announces the tremendous words of consecration, He reaches up into the heavens, brings Christ down from His throne, and places Him upon our altar to be offered up again as the victim for the sins of man. It is a power greater than that of saints and angels, greater than that of seraphim and cherubim. Indeed, it is greater even than the power of the Virgin Mary. While the Blessed Virgin was the human agency by which Christ became incarnate, A single time, the priest brings Christ down from heaven and renders Him present on our altar as the eternal victim for the sin of man, not once but a thousand times. The priest speaks and lo, Christ, the eternal and omnipotent God, bows His head in humble obedience to the priest's command. 
Oh, what sublime dignity is the office of the Christian priest who is thus privileged to act as the ambassador and the vice-regent of Christ on earth. He continues the essential ministry of Christ. He teaches the faithful with the authority of Christ. He pardons the penitent sinner with the power of Christ. He offers up again the same sacrifice of adoration and atonement which Christ offered on Calvary. No wonder that the name which spiritual writers are especially fond of applying to the priest is that of Alter Christus, for the priest is and should be another Christ. And those are the words of Reverend James O'Brien in his book, Faith of Millions. But even worse are the teachings of St. Alphonsus Liguri. Alphonsus Liguri wrote in the 1700s just screeds and screeds of blasphemous material. And the Roman Catholic system has put its imprimatur on him by canonizing him, declaring him to be a saint and doctor of the church. In 1839, Pope Gregory XVI did that. And the name of one of his infamous books is called The Dignities and Duty of the Priest. And it's gone through 800 editions. It's one of the most popular books, theological books, in the Roman Catholic system. And he's called, as I said, a doctor of the church, which is limited to a small number of people, such as St. Augustine and Thomas Aquinas and a few others. But listen to what this man wrote. Jesus has died to institute the priesthood. It was not necessary for the Redeemer to die in order to save the world. A drop of His blood, a single tear or prayer, was sufficient to procure salvation for all. For such a prayer being of infinite value would be sufficient to save not one but a thousand worlds. Now think about what he's saying there. He's denying the fact that our sin had to be atoned for by death. By the death of the substitute. It didn't take just a drop of blood or a tear or a prayer from Jesus to save us. That's just completely false. And it violates what Christ's prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane was all about. If that was the way it should be, then that's the way it would have been. But it wasn't. A sacrifice that take away sin in which Christ is punished for our sins is the only way that God could find to save His people whom He loved because we had sinned. And so here He starts out by denying the necessity of the death of Christ to save His people. Okay, but now He explains why Christ really had to die. But to institute the priesthood, that is the false Roman Catholic priesthood, the death of Jesus Christ has been necessary. Had He not died, where would we find the victim that the priests of the new law now offer. So Christ only died so that these Roman Catholic so-called priests could have a victim to instantiate in the bread and the wine of the Eucharist. He died not to save men, but rather to institute the earthly priesthood. A victim altogether holy and immaculate, capable of giving to God an honor worthy of God. Notice that's not Christ dying on the cross. That's the sacrifice of the Mass. That's the honor worthy of God that he's speaking of here. 
As has already been said, all the lives of men and angels are not capable of giving to God an infinite honor like that which a priest offers to Him by a single mass. They've got it completely backwards, you said, about what Christ's death did and why it was necessary and what it accomplished. They've transferred all of that imperfectly into their little mass offering that they make. You see how they've evacuated Christ's death of substantially all of its meaning and put it into this made-up sacrifice which their priesthood offers. Let's go on. Under the title, Grandeur of the Priestly Power, you can tell where this is headed. The dignity of the priest is also estimated by the power that he has over the real and the mystic body of Jesus Christ. With regard to the power of priests over the real body of Jesus Christ, it is of faith that when they pronounce the words of consecration, the incarnate Word has obliged Himself to obey and to come into their hands under the sacramental species, that is, the bread and the wine. We find that in obedience to the words of His priests, hoc est corpus meum, which means this is my body, God Himself descends on the altar, that He comes whenever they call Him, and as often as they call Him, and places Himself in their hands even though they should be His enemies. And after having come, He remains entirely at their disposal. They move Him as they please from one place to another. They may, if they wish, shut Him up in the tabernacle or expose Him on the altar or carry Him outside the church. They may, if they choose, eat His flesh and give Him for the food of others. But He continues. With regard to the mystic body of Christ, that is, all the faithful, the priest has the power of the keys or the power of delivering sinners from hell or making them worthy of paradise and of changing them from the slaves of Satan into the children of God. And God Himself is obliged to abide by the judgment of His priests and either not to pardon or to pardon according as they refuse it or give absolution, provided the penitent is capable of it. So the priests, under their blasphemous theory, they dictate to God what He's going to do with regard to pardoning or not pardoning penitent sinners. And then later he writes, Hence priests are called the parents of Jesus Christ. Such is the title that St. Bernard gives them. For they are the active cause by which He is made to exist really in the consecrated host. Thus the priest may in a certain manner be called the creator of his creator. Since by saying the words of consecration, he creates, as it were, Jesus in the sacrament by giving him a sacramental existence and produces him as a victim to be offered to the eternal Father. As in creating the world, it was sufficient for God to have said, let it be made and it was created. He spoke and they were made. So it is sufficient for the priest to say, hoc est corpus meum, and behold, the bread is no longer bread, but the body of Jesus Christ. The power of the priest, says St. Bernardine of Siena, is the power of the divine person. For the transubstantiation of the bread requires as much power as the creation of the world. The dignity of the priest is so great that he even blesses Jesus Christ on the altar as a victim to be offered to the Eternal Father. In the sacrifice of the Mass, writes Father Monsi, Jesus Christ is the principal offerer and victim. As minister, he blesses the priest, but as victim, 
but as victim, the priest blesses him. And then under the title of elevation of the post occupied by the priest, he writes, the greatness of the dignity of a priest is also estimated from the high place that he occupies. The priesthood is called at the Senate of Charter in 1550, the seat of the saints. Priests are called vicars of Jesus Christ because they hold his place on earth. You hold the place of Christ, says St. Augustine to them. Jesus Christ left his priests after him to hold on earth his place of mediator between God and man, particularly on the altar. Let the priest, says St. Lawrence Justinian, approach the altar as another Christ. The Jews said, who can forgive sins but God alone? But what only God can do by his omnipotence, the priest can also do by saying, ego te absolvo a peccatus tuis. That means I absolve you of your sins. What the priest does, what is wonderful, for by saying, ego te absolvo, he changes the sinner from an enemy into the friend of God and from the slave of hell into the heir of paradise. Cardinal Hugo represents the Lord addressing the following words to a priest who absolves a sinner. Quote, I have created heaven and earth, but I leave to you a better and nobler operation. Make out of this soul that is in sin a new soul. That is, make out of this soul that is in sin a new soul. That is, make out of the slave of Satan that the soul is a child of God. I have made the earth bring forth all kinds of fruit, but to thee, that is the Roman priest, I confide a more beautiful creation, namely, that the soul should bring forth fruits of salvation. A priest absolving a sinner performs the very office of the Holy Ghost in the sanctification of souls. Well, that concludes our readings from Alphonsus Liguri, but I think you can see that the blasphemy drips from the pages place after place after place. Indeed, the Roman Catholic blasphemers claim that their priests share with Christ the priesthood of Melchizedek. You see, they took over after Christ died, after he vacated the position as our priest after the order of Melchizedek. They take over, you see. Now they're offering the sacrifice that takes away sin, just like Christ did when he was on earth. They've taken over for Jesus, even though Hebrews taught us that Christ has an unchangeable priesthood, and He ever lives to intercede for us now. Therefore, He's able to save us to the uttermost because He always lives to make intercession for us. That's what the Scriptures teach. This is why the Pope is so reluctant to defrock priests. The Roman Catholic demonic teaching of priests has painted them into a corner. You see, they've invested in these priests which they've created so much power, and they have made him such an intricate part of the salvation of men's souls by usurping the purpose and power of Christ, that now when a priest misbehaves and commits barbarous sins, they don't really know what to do about it, do they? Back in 2010, the papers were abuzz about the latest wrinkles in the Roman Catholic priest scandals which involved thousands of victims of molestation. 
and the fact that the Roman Catholic system covered it up for decades. This time over a letter by Cardinal Ratzinger, now Pope Benedict at the time, seeming to indicate that the Vatican dragged its feet in defrocking a convicted pedophile priest in California. Even though the priest in question asked to be defrocked and his bishop urged the Vatican to act, it took six years to do so, during which time the man volunteered to work with children at a parish. Ratzinger explained in his letter that his court had to consider the scandal to the church and the effect defrocking the pedophile priest would have on the common good of the Roman Catholic system and upon its adherents. The press and many Christian critics seem to have missed the point of Ratzinger's letter, for the scandal he refers to is not that of a pedophile priest. Rather, Ratzinger seems to be concerned about the scandal of defrocking a priest and the effect that would have on Roman Catholicism. The Roman Catholic system has usurped Christ's sole right as our high priest and has placed in so-called priests the power of salvation itself. To defrock such a person is to undermine the very means by which that apostate church controls salvation itself and dispenses its poisonous false works gospel by the church and its laws and officers. But our high priest is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. We will never need to be ashamed by our Lord Jesus, our priest forever, and he will never ever fail in any way so as to undermine the perfection of his sacrifice and the work of his interceding as our great high priest. The Scriptures teach that our Lord Jesus is our high priest who alone offered the final sacrifice for sin at Calvary. But these liturgical churches like the Roman Catholics, the Episcopalians, the Anglicans, vainly seek to insert their own priests and most often it is for the purpose of handling the Lord's table as though it were an offering for sin. The Scriptures teach that all the saints are priests to God not of a sacrifice for sin, for there can be none other than Christ. But we offer sacrifices of praise, thanksgiving, worship, acts of charity, which are acceptable offerings to God. With the Lord Jesus offering the sin offering and the saints offering worship and praise, there simply is no other offering for the so-called priests of Catholicism and Anglicanism to make. Yet the Roman Catholic system claims that its priests handle the body and blood of Christ's sacrifice at the Mass. They claim the Mass is a propitiatory sacrifice for the sins of the communicants and therefore requires their priest to consecrate and administer the offering of God. Their claim is that they are representing Christ's sacrifice for additional atonement for sin. What an insult to Christ's work. It is as if when he presented his offering before the throne of heaven, he somehow left some of the sin of his people unatoned for. But scriptures say that by that one sacrifice, he purged our sins by himself. That is why he has sat down because the offering is completed. We don't need any so-called priests representing or reusing Christ's offering. It's an insult to Jesus and a shoving aside of his glorious person from his unique office of high priest. Any repeated sacrifice is a defective sacrifice. 
Praise God, Christ is perfect. Needs no repetition. Now recall that this is a sacrifice re-offered, according to the Roman Catholic Mass, would show, first of all, that it does not take away sin. For if it did, it would cease to be offered. Isn't that what Hebrews 10 says? We read it this morning. Their sacrifice re-offered for the forgiveness of sin is not a real sacrifice, as they suppose, because Hebrews 10 tells us that if it were an acceptable sacrifice to God, it would stop being offered because it would take away the sin of the people. And secondly, the continual sacrifice that cannot purge the sinner stands instead as a reminder of sin. Remember early in Hebrews 10 it said that these repeated sacrifices all they do is serve as a remembrance of sin. Because again, if they had done the job, they wouldn't be repeated. But the fact they have to be repeated proves that the sin is not atoned for after all. So built into the whole Roman Mass are the defects that were denounced in Hebrews with regard to the animal sacrifices of the Old Covenant. At the Lord's table, we are not reminding God or ourselves of our sin. For God has forgiven for all time those who trust in Christ's sacrifice. No, we are giving thanks and worship to our sacrifice and for our sacrifice who all at once and for all times has saved us. No wonder we are greatly comforted by God's oath to Christ to make him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Nobody in any other faith or religion or heretical belief system can lay hold of the comfort which we have in Christ according to the oath that God made him our high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. You see that that oath to Christ and his priesthood entails such glorious results for His people who trust in Him. Forgiveness of sin once and for all. Obtained redemption. Taking away our trespasses and reconciling us to God. If your religion has a repeated sacrifice, you don't get any of that. You have none of that. All you have is hopelessness and a perpetual treadmill of works, of rituals, and of subservience to a earthly false priest. Let nobody seek to shoehorn themselves or their so-called sacrifice in the high place of our Lord Jesus. And so we come to the Lord's table. We come to celebrate what Jesus did for us one time for all. And we don't offer it up as a sacrifice except of praise to our God. We don't offer it as a sacrifice for sin. We don't claim that by eating of this bread and drinking of this cup, our sins are forgiven, for they were forgiven already by the real sacrifice, which these symbols are only meant to memorialize. But rather, you see, we're free to praise our God, to praise the Lamb, for He is worthy, to praise His holy name for what He has done for us to recall that 
day when he laid down his life and saved his people from their sin. I'd like to ask Brother Whitten if he'd give thanks for the bread that pictures the body of Christ broken for us. And the scriptures tell us on the night our Lord was betrayed that he took the bread and he blessed it. And he broke it and he said, take and eat. This is my body which was broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's give thanks for the cup that pictures the blood of the Lord Jesus shed to make atonement for us. Oh God, our Father, we rejoice that in your dear Son was only to be found that Lamb who could be slain for the sin of His people, that you would be satisfied with the offering of Christ. That He's the answer to little Isaac's question, where is the Lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham told him, my son God shall provide Himself a Lamb for a sacrifice. And you provided of yourself the Lord Jesus in His humanity to be that sacrifice to take away our sin by the shedding of His blood. We have redemption through His blood, even the forgiveness of sin. And we thank You that this sacrifice is one time for all Your people and that it has accomplished our redemption and our forgiveness of sin and our justification. We thank You that You have showed to us the blood of Jesus in Your Word and by the picture of these symbols each Lord's Day. And we rejoice in what He did. And we rejoice in Your satisfaction with the body and blood of Christ. And we rejoice that it never needs to be repeated or represented by any frail, worthless human priesthood. But that our Lord Jesus right there is in Your presence. The sacrifice is in the presence of the glory of God forevermore. And He makes intercession for us there. And we thank You that we have so great a priest as our Redeemer and that our priest provided Himself to be the sacrifice that put an end to all other sacrifices unto God for sinners. Pray that You would bless us as we partake of this fruit of the vine this morning knowing what it represents and how glorious and how valuable it is to all of your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The Scriptures tell us after they had supped that Jesus took the cup and He blessed it. And He said, This cup is the new covenant in My blood for the remission of sin. Do it as often as ye do it in remembrance of Me. And the Scriptures tell us that as often as we eat this bread and drink this cup, we do preach the Lord's death until He comes. Let's stand and sing number 158 in the black book. Isaac Watts, sweet hymn, How sweet and holy is the place with Christ within the doors where everlasting love displays the choicest of her stores. Number 158. <laughs>